Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socho in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socho and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who killed him. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. 
so. David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Great, well, thank you very, very much. That was brilliantly read. And uh, Debbie has got uh, her own little battle going on uh, behind the screen. <coughs> so we've had a, a brilliant reading. Uh, I just love that, didn't you? As soon as David returned from killing the Philistines, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's hand. You can just imagine, can't you? Sort of walk with this king. Nice to meet you. Um, and, uh, and uh, <coughs> yeah. Didn't want to gross you out with that, but that's what it says. Okay, let me ask you a question to start with, and that is, how much faith do you need to see God at work doing something amazing? That's the question, actually, whether you're a Christian or not Christian. It doesn't really matter, because both people kind of ask the same question on two sides of the line. So non-Christians will often turn around and say, oh, I wish I had your faith. It's like they're thinking that we've got faith like a, speck of, like a pair of God specks and that we can somehow see God and they can't and they wish we ha they had specks like ours. Um, but actually, Christians think a bit like that as well. And we big up faith and say that it's only if you really, really believe will you see God doing the big miracles. Um, and um, uh, do the amazing things uh, that God can do only if you really, really believe. So in other words, you need specs, specs of confidence, and then you'll be able to see God more. Well, I want to ask you, actually, do you need faith to see God at work? I want to think about that this evening, looking at that question with this little chapter to help us. And the first thing you're going to see as you look at one chapter, Samuel chapter 117 is the presence of unbelief. 
and you pick that up on both sides, the Christians and the non-Christians, if you like, or the believers and the unbelievers, the Philistines, uh, the unbelievers in the chapter, in the large shape of Goliath, they are convinced that the God of Israel is going to be no help at all. So Goliath curses the God of Israel by his own gods, which he thinks are better, if you look at verse 43. That's the unbelievers for you. But then the believers, the Israelites, aren't actually looking for God to do anything either. They don't mention him. There's no confidence that he's going to do anything amazing. They're just scared. And let's zoom in on them for a minute because actually their unbelief is a bit more worrying since they're the ones that are meant to be God's people. So how come they don't believe God's going to do much? Well, to put it in a nutshell, why is it people don't believe? I need to borrow a phrase that uh, Samuel used last week when we were here, if you were here to remember. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, he said, the trouble with people is people look at the outward appearance. And if you just go by what you can look at, well, you won't see much of God. And that's what people are doing from the very moment that Goliath appears, they're looking at what they can look at. And uh, you see the first thing we're told about uh, Goliath, as they are transfixed by him, is that he was a bit on the tall side. In fact, a lot on the tall side, if you look at verse 4, um, nine feet, thereabouts. And the rest of the description about him, when you read about all the stuff that he's wearing, makes him stand there like an indestructible, impregnable fortress. And you just look at him in verses 4 to 7 and see what they say about him in verses 4 to 7. And you can see from that that no one stands a chance. Now, actually, if you look at verse 47, I love the subtle way the defeat of Goliath is actually stitched in to the description of his strength. If you think about it, when you look at all those different uh, details about Goliath's armor, you won't know until the end how come the Israelites were able to remember all the details? How come they were able to find out all the weights so accurately? Because actually Goliath was defeated and they were able to take the things back into the tent and weigh them. And so all the details of his strength are actually meant to think, actually, they point to his weakness. But just notice the details of his strength and smile because you know how come those details are there. Just for the moment, his uh, winner-takes-all proposal goes unchallenged because he just looks such a beast. 
Now, when it comes to looking at outward appearances, <coughs> actually their king Saul was the nearest thing they had to a bloke the size of Goliath. So when he first meets Saul, in uh, chapter 9, verse 2, just flick back uh, a couple of pages, easy to do, and you see that uh, in chapter 9, verse 2, on page 78, uh, 278, <coughs> Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And if you look at chapter 10, verse 23, just the next page, says it again, they ran out and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And actually, his job as the king of Israel was to fight Philistines and beat them. So if you look at chapter 9 and verse uh, 16, uh, that's what it says about this time tomorrow. I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler of my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. That's Saul's job. He's there to get rid of the people that are there threatening them uh, on that battlefield that day. But push comes to shove. He's as scared as everybody else. And he didn't do his job all that well the last time we saw Saul go near a battlefield in 1 Samuel chapter 14, you remember, that uh, he couldn't beat the Philistines as much as he could have done because he made his army fight on an empty stomach. And therefore, chapter 14 verse 30 says, as a result, the guys were not that strong um, when it comes to finishing off the enemy. And his son Jonathan says, how much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? So the fact that there is now such a huge force of Philistines against him on the other side of the hill is entirely his own fault. Because as a result of what he did in chapter 14, there were so many that lived to fight another day. And here they are, alive and threatening once again. So Saul, as the king, who should have marched out, is a dead loss. But he's more than dead loss because he's not just like Goliath in his height. He's like Goliath in his faith, or should I say unbelief. Because like Goliath, he too doesn't think that David is going to do very well. Both men are as each other in thinking that David uh, is likely to fail. And if you go by what you see, which is what we're really talking about now, then you will find that unbelief is going to grow. And that is going to be the same inside the church and outside the church. And the thing about unbelief is you can smell it. What's the smell of uh, unbelief in this uh, chapter? 
What's the smell of it in verse 11? What's the smell of it in verse 24? What's the, the smell of unbelief in verse 11 and in verse 24? Anyone find the one word that describes uh, the smell of it. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And verse 24, when Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Uh, the smell of unbelief is fear. And the smell of fear, uh, you know what uh, people do when they're scared, don't you? Uh, we're too polite to say it, but we know what the smell is. Okay, that's what it smells like to ultimately draw the wrong conclusions about God. It stinks. Story is told about uh, uh, Admiral Nelson, <coughs> morning of the Battle of uh, Trafalgar. Uh, the lookout uh, shouts out that he can see a Spanish ship, and so Admiral Nelson is uh, said to have told uh, Harding, uh, Harding. Bring me my red trousers. Uh, I don't want anyone to see if I'm shot. And then the lookout says, Hold on a moment, Captain. It's not one ship, it's the whole Spanish Armada. And uh, Nelson's reporter said, Harding, bring me the brown trousers, please. Uh, that's uh, the fear. That's is essentially uh, what uh, happens when you go by what you see. I'm sure none of that is true. <laughs> but it makes a point that what's at the bottom of unbelief, now no pun intended there, is just going by what you see. And it stinks to realise the conclusions that that leads to about God. Unbelief smells when there's a great God like this and that's not recognised. So, the, the presence of unbelief and in fact uh, <coughs> the putrid smell of it as well. Okay, second point, the entrance of God's Messiah. Now, let me leave Goliath in verse 11 and let me introduce you to someone called David in verse 12. And the big point when you read the David and Goliath story, and any story in the Bible actually, is don't read Bible stories like children's stories. That it never happened, and more to the point, as if there's nothing that came before, and there's nothing that comes after. Okay? Because David is not just there in chapter 17. As a brave lad who kills a giant, and you can beat the giants in your life if you're like him. That's to get it wrong. I've said that before myself, preaching. Wish I hadn't. Listen to me this time and wipe out the previous talks. David comes into chapter 17 as the freshly anointed king and saviour of God's people from chapter 16. We saw that last week. 
So he comes into chapter 17 as the Messiah. That's what the, uh, an, what the Messiah means, as the one who's anointed. Messiah is the one with oil on his head. Okay? So he comes into the battlefield in 1 Samuel chapter 17 as the unique Messiah, the only one there on the battlefield who can do something about this threat. And you can certainly see how they need a Messiah, a Saviour, on the battlefield. If you've just read verses 1 to 11 about Saul, seeing what he's like. And so the story of salvation begins, or the story of safety for God's people begins, in verse 12, with the little town of Bethlehem. That's where you're going to have to find him. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite called Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And the young Messiah in Bethlehem is an obedient son to his father in verse 20. And he takes a food parcel to the war zone because this is a son who is obedient to his father. And the big difference between David and the rest is summed up in just two words in verse 23. And that is, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the first time chapter from Gath, stepped out from his lines, shouted his defense, and here's the two words that made all the difference. David heard. That's the difference between David and the rest. Everyone else is affected by what they see. David is affected by what he hears. And what he hears is God being dishonoured by unbelief. He hears what this Philistine on steroids has to say. And he is consumed for the glory of God. He can't bear to hear God spoken of in this kind of way. How dare this man say anything like that against God? But people looking at David, they go by what they see and they don't esteem him very much, do they? So you might say in this chapter that David has got to fight three Goliaths. And he's got to fight uh, first, his brother, he, actually his big brother, Eliab, uh, who tells him off for time at the battlefield and having a look. And we know in chapter 16 and verses 6 and 7 that Eliab is a tall man. Uh, it says that of him. Um, <coughs> uh, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to him, Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. So, Eliab is a tall man. Who thought that uh, David uh, was uh, just being pushy? Saul was a tall man. Who thought that David was being proud? Well, certainly overconfident. Goliath was a tall man. Who thought that David was puny? Three Goliaths who thought that God's Messiah wouldn't do very much. But he thinks like uh, a good shepherd. 
He has looked after his sheep in the past and he's going to look after the armour the same way. He doesn't need to lay down his life on the battlefield because he will beat Goliath with his own awesome weapon. And what he did was to win a victory that then all God's people could enter into it after he had won it. He had to win it first and then everybody else could step over the dead body of the Philistine and go and win themselves and enter into all that he had achieved. Now, <clears throat> in all that, David was actually resembling the Messiah of the Bible, who is the Lord Jesus. So, yes, his story starts in the little town of Bethlehem. Yes, he is obedient to his father as he grew up. Yes, he heard what people said to dishonor God and was completely consumed by a desire for his father's glory. Yes, he was despised and rejected by men and uh, counted of no use. Yes, he was the good shepherd who was even willing to lay down his life for the sheep and he beat the enemy, which is death, by its own weapon. He died and beat death to come back to life. And as a result of his victory on the cross, all his people can climb over the body of death, if I can put it like that, and rush into a new life of victory and a secure future. That is what the story of David and Goliath is meant to teach us. What can we learn from it specifically for ourselves? Well, if you're maybe new to Christian things, new to church, and there are some wonderful people, we met them on the estate today, uh, who know that actually they aren't believers and they're honest about it and humble about it and say as much. What if that's you? Can I suggest it's a really helpful thing to analyse why is it that you struggle to believe? Let me suggest to you from this passage that you are steered by what your eyes see. And if that is your world, that is going to be a small world. You won't see God in it. And my friend, that is not an okay way to live. It stinks. The smell will be unbearable on the day that this invisible God appears and you realize you drew all the wrong conclusions about him. Then the smell will be awful. Now once you have an insight into the reason why we don't believe, 
then we might be open to what new channel might be opening up for us, which is not to go by what we see, but to go by what we hear. Now, I'm not going to say that God's going to come and speak to you in your head. Okay? Um, uh, not going to say that God's going to come and speak to you in your head. I'm saying God will speak to you from this passage. Because you'll notice in verse 46 that when David talks about this victory, it is not meant to be a local consumption thing. So the people at the time say, okay, there's a God. No, if you look at the end uh, of uh, verse 47, um, sorry, verse 46, it is that the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. It is for you guys in Dagenham to know that there's a God from this story. Don't need to listen to your own voices in your own heads. Get it from the Bible. Get it from here. Because what happened on that day was not just for the locals. It's actually happened. That battle happened for your benefit. So that you might know for sure there really is a God. And you don't need special God specs to see God. You just need to hear the Bible explained. And that's why they're so happy you're listening tonight. What would be really great to do is to go home asking God to help you to hear him and learn about him from the Bible. So you can then see him in new ways before you actually do face to face. That I think is a lesson if you're someone who's new and uh, wanting to go home thoughtful. What if you're churchy? I think there are big lessons for those who've maybe gone to the church all their lives and who know this kind of stuff from the cradle onwards. Uh, we can treat the David Goliath story as a kind of pep talk that God can bring down any Goliath that you face. You've just got to have the faith and God will win and you will win. That's rubbish. Because for a start, it stops us being humble and honest with ourselves. Because, I mean, when is it that we get real and say that our own faith count is pretty low? Now, when God works in this chapter, there is no faith on either side of the divide. With the believers or the unbelievers, there's no faith. There's no faith until the Messiah comes and his faith wins. And then his people compile it on the strength of what he achieves. Jesus is, uh, David is uniquely like Jesus. And uh, we need to see that our faith is at a low ebb until Jesus comes and uh, uh, gives us something to respond to. But I think the bigger mistake that church people often make is to play games with what their own personal Goliath may or may not be. So some people say, <coughs> uh, what, what giant do you want to topple in your life? 
what victory are you really after? Is it victory over your finances? So that's what the prosperity gospel will offer you. Have enough faith? And that giant of uh, difficulty will fall. Is it victory over illness? Is it victory over our addictions? What victory do we want to rejoice in the most? I think we need to get Goliath right in terms of the big enemy that we face. And to get Goliath right, to understand what is that enemy that we are powerless to do anything about until our Messiah turns up and wins the biggest battle in history when he dies on the cross. The victory that he wins is the battle against the consequences of our unbelief, which is death. That is the victory, the big one, that he, he, he wins. Death is the big enemy that we can't do anything about, that we're all helpless in front of. Whether we have to be believers or unbelievers, it's the same enormous, impregnable, unassailable enemy that is there in front of us in our lives, that we will have to face up to sooner or later. And with that massive enemy in front of us, it is ridiculous for a Christian preacher to then go and say, well, let me tell you about how God can deliver you from these other Goliaths. Guys, that's the Goliath we need to be talking about. And that is the giant that is looming ahead for all of us. Until our enemy, kill, our, our Messiah kills it, and now we can climb over that dead body of death and live secure in that victory forever. We need to rejoice in that victory. Not try to uh, apply this message to uh, anything uh, superficial we might face. And lastly, what if you believe that great victory and that victory that is waiting for us to enter into in the future, is there no present victory that we can look forward to here and now? And I think yes, there is. Because the joy of being like uh, Jesus is how we live for him now consumed for the glory of God so that's what matters to us more than anything else in the world. And our desire is not just for us but for our community and for anyone in the end who tells us that God is not real or that great. That's is what ought to exercise us as Christians, passionate for the glory of God. That should be the thing that we want to go, that unbelief, that low opinion that people have of God, that is the stench we need to shovel off our estate 
because frankly it stinks. To think of God as less than God is something that any believer with the Spirit of Jesus in them will want to violently uh, feel nauseated about and sickened by because he is so great we can't let people draw the wrong conclusions about him. So that is the victory worth paying for. Living for the glory of Jesus, that is our passionate take-home for ourselves. That is what, uh, frankly, is the only thing in this life worth putting your life on the line for, to live for that. So that other people on this estate can step over the dead body of death and enter into the joy of an immense, secure, eternal future with the one who gave them that victory. That is what we want for every single man, woman and child out there in Beckertree. And that's a wonderful life to be passionate about. Let's pray that God will give it to us and then we'll take questions after that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Almighty Father, we thank you for teaching us about Jesus tonight. Please help us to hate our unbelief, which usually goes by just being steered by what our eyes see. And help us to love the victory of your Son and to live for his glory in the power of his Spirit. And we pray this in his name. Amen.